Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Ferguson Jenkins, the Hall of Fame pitcher, great pitcher, great Canadian native of Chatham, Ontario, and uh, got a hold of Fergie as he was back in his homeland for the holidays. We had a lovely chat, talked about his great career, about what it means to be Canadian and have accomplished all that he did. First Canadian to go into the uh, Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and uh, other stuff too. African-American pitcher riding the buses through Alabama and Georgia and Florida in the 60s in the minor leagues. As you can imagine, that was uh, interesting and colorful and sometimes challenging. And uh, what a smart, wonderful, interesting guy. Really, really... Uh, fun to talk to, interesting, insightful, and affable, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks to Dave Morneau for uh, providing a little bit of intel on this. Dave uh, does great work over the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, and also former podcast guest on the show, friend of the show as well. And also to the great Amy, uh, wife, podcast producer, best friend, all the great things for suggesting, hey, you know what, you should call Fergie Jenkins to do a podcast. You're right, Amy, I did, and it was good. So there you go. Uh, other than that, catch me, cbssports.com, a billion, zillion, trillion off-season articles. I have now, as we speak, written up 29 of the 30 teams in my off-season bonanza, looking at every club, what they've been doing, what they have, what they are doing, what they might do going forward. The only one left to write is the Texas Rangers, just because we're doing it by division alphabetically. So Texas is the one yet to go. After that, uh, some more good stuff coming down the pike. You will see I have my MLB Trade Value Series, which I write every year. Also going to have a, a two-parter on, I don't want to say the worst contracts, because that's not really the right way to look at it. It's the most player-friendly contracts. Players maybe got the best of these. So that will be coming up in the uh, near future as well. Check that out. And uh, I'm recording this late on Christmas Day. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas and you're on your way to great holidays, that it's restful and delightful. And I guess this is the last podcast of 2018, an eventful and fun year uh, here on my end. And I hope it was great for all of you as well. And uh, I hope that you have a smile on your face wherever you are on this planet. So here you go. It is the final 2018 edition of the John Carey Podcast. And a great way to end it. It's with the Hall of Famer, Ferguson Jenkins. Enjoy. Uh, very pleased and privileged to be joined by Hall of Fame pitcher and, uh, according to our mutual friend, Dave Morneau, uh, one of the most affable, friendly, and lovable people you will ever meet. It's Ferguson Jenkins. Sir, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Things are good. Things are good. So I want to, uh, lo- lots to cover just because your life and career has been so interesting. And I think a good place to start, you know, I've talked to a bunch of ex-ball players, 
about their path. And I'm always interested in that. And Chatham, Ontario wasn't necessarily regarded as a baseball hotbed. So how do you get from point A to point B? How does a kid from Chatham uh, end up climbing the ranks the way that you did? Well, I had various scouts, Gene DeGura, who uh, came to Chatham from Windsor, ex-ball player in the Cub organization, uh, became the history teacher at the Collegiate High School. Hmm. Uh, at the age of 15, uh, got me working out uh, as a pitcher. Uh, I was 15 that winter. I turned 16. So uh, it was enjoyable. For like two seasons, uh, I threw to him every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, basically at the local high school. And uh, lo and behold, I became a pretty good pitcher. And you were somebody who played multiple sports at the time, too, and you were quite good at a bunch of them. What made you decide that baseball was going to be the one as opposed to you're a pretty good basketball player, you ran track, all that? Well, I think because of the fact that uh, the other sports were something I did in high school and possibly outside of uh, the school period. Mm-hmm. Uh, baseball was basically in the summer, uh, and baseball started in May, and you ran through to September, and as an athlete, I think uh, day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year, I got better playing the game of baseball. And you subsequently go, go on, you're signed uh, by the Phillies, and you make your way to the major leagues in that fashion. Tell me about what minor league ball was like in the 60s. You know, you're coming up through the ranks. Uh, was it just riding a whole bunch of buses? Was it, you know, 12-hour rides? Was it seven to an apartment and peanut butter sandwiches? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of conditions there as you're making your way up? Well, I signed, as you said, with the Phillies, 1962. Uh, rode buses in the Florida State League, also in the Southern League. I played for Chattanooga and then Little Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little different situation with players of color. Yes. Cuban players, uh, kids from Venezuela, uh, and you know, youngsters from the United States. Uh, it was a it was a grueling situation. My leagues are not comfortable. Yeah. Like the big leagues. And it took a it took me two and a half seasons to get through the minor leagues. And someone liked basically what I was doing. I was a winning pitcher in the minor leagues, and that opportunity to come up in 1965. As a September call up with the Phillies, uh, showed the organization that I could win and pitch well. And then the following year, in '66, I got traded to the Cubs. Did you have a sense, especially you know, Southern League, the Florida State League? We're talking about the the, the South of the U.S. as well, not just the U.S., but particularly in the South. I'm going to guess that not to say that their life was free of prejudice in Chatham, but that it was maybe relatively more progressive. Was it a shock to the system? Had you been kind of alerted to the fact, hey, you know what, you're coming through Chattanooga or this town or that town, it might be a little bit different than it was in Ontario? Oh, definitely. Uh, the scouts that signed me uh, and Gene DeGira gave me uh, some uh, hints of what playing in the South would be like. Uh, keep your nose clean, play the game, don't let things bother you, go out there and, and prove to the organization that you can win. You won't stay in this league long. But I, I, my whole career was in the South. Yeah. Started off in Miami, as I said, then Chattanooga, and then uh, I was one of the first players of color to play in Little Rock with Dick Allen, wow. uh, Marcelino Lopez, and Richie Quito. Four different countries. Panama, Cuba, United States, Canada. <laughs> Did you have a sense of you know, for lack of a better term, being a trailblazer of sorts. I mean, Jackie had debuted, obviously, a couple decades earlier. 
But, you know, Pumpsy Green only came to the Red Sox in 59. So this is still not that far removed from integration. And this is still very much a, a situation where, as you said, the, the idea of keeping your nose clean, frankly, I don't know if a white kid from Iowa is going to be told, hey, keep your nose clean. It's just almost like there was, uh, you know, a little bit of a double standard. Did you feel like you were carrying a torch for people of color? Or was it just, okay, well, I'm, Listen, I'm 21 years old. I'm making my way and I'm going to have my career. And that was that. Did, did it feel greater than the baseball experience itself, I guess? Well, it was a learning experience. You know, the, the, the first Dominican player was Ozzy Virgil Sr. Yep. With the Tigers. So a, a lot of teams were playing uh, players of color mm-hmm. because of that. Minnie Minoso with the White Sox. So there were a lot of teams. Larry Doby, Cleveland, Jackie Robinson, as you said, in the 50s. You know, I wasn't a pioneer in the Philly organization, because they had a lot of other players of yep. color. But it was just the fact that I was a Canadian and I didn't play that much of baseball in the summer months compared to kids from the Latin American countries or California or Florida. But as a pitcher, I learned what I had to do, and I learned how to win. And that basically gave me an, gave me an edge. When you were coming up, that was quite the era, too. So you debut, and that's the heyday of Koufax. Marischal, Gibson, they're all rivals. They're all in the same league. Did you take anything from them in terms of, oh, okay, that leg kick, or mm, that's interesting the way the release point is on the fastball, or I'm going to look for something there? Because it's hard to do better. It's hard to think of, of three better pitchers to be contemporaries of as much as you have to compete with them. Was there anything to be had from their playbook, or did you just sort of sit back and say, man, these guys are good. i got to find a way to beat them. Well, you basically knew that really you really just beat them. You beat the, the opponent. Right. So I had them to learn their lineups, uh, what uh, hitters like to hit where, how their lineups were all left or all right-handed hitters. And Marichelle, like I said, Marichelle Gibson and all these guys had low ERAs. You had to try to, to do as much uh, to keep runners off base, keep the games low-scoring, to try to win ball games, and uh, I was very fortunate enough. I had uh, good defense behind me with uh, Santa with third, mm-hmm. your Becker, and uh, and Ernie Banks at first. I mean, you can't as a pitcher you can't win alone. So I had good defense, and the guys scored me runs, and I was very fortunate enough to win ball games. Santa is such an interesting case. You know, he passes away. He goes into the Hall of Fame uh, after the fact. And it just didn't feel that he got his just due. Tell me about the kind of player that he was at the time. I think Banks' greatness was recognized. But Santo, it felt like something got lost in translation. The numbers were certainly there. But as somebody who wasn't old enough to have watched him, what was your impression of him as a ball player? Well, Ronnie was a hard-dose player. Played yeah. every day. Uh, some seasons played 150 ball games. Uh, similar to Billy Williams. That yeah. had a streak going. He played like 1,700 games in a row. Mm. Uh, you know, Mr. Cub, Ernie Banks, was always well noted because he was one of the first Cubs to win MVPs back-to-back. He did such a great job. I'm not saying these guys are overshadowed, but they were the veterans on the ball club. Banks, Santa, Williams, yeah. when I came to the ball club. I'm 21 years old. These guys are 24, 25 years old. Uh, and Ernie was a little older. Ernie was in his mid thirties. Mm. So I, I just think that when when you look at players 
that loved to play the game. Uh, Ronnie was one of those. I mean, he was a hard nosed player. Wanted to play every day. Wanted to hit home runs, drive in runs, which he did. And he, he put together some good numbers. It's really unfortunate when he got inducted in the Hall of Fame. It was kind of bittersweet because he'd already passed away. Too bad. I want to ask you about your time with the Harlem Globetrotters because that's one of my favorite things about any ex-ball player that I know of. That, you know, here you are and you're establishing yourself in your career and it's really starting to click for you in the late 60s. And you end up playing for the Trotters in the offseason. How did that come to pass? Uh, Joe Zavino was the marketing individual with the Globetrotters. And he uh, came to the ballpark uh, in mid-September and asked me, was I going to go back to Canada to basically uh, to, to live in the offseason? And I told him, I, you know, I play in a 10-month visa <laughs> at the time. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to uh, show the organization that I could play basketball. And uh, that was one of the nice things about it, with playing with Metal Arc, Curly, and Jackie Jackson. You know, they didn't want some guy to just stand out there not knowing what he's supposed to do. So I was became part of the routine. Uh, I, I did the out-of-bounds skit around the world, the figure eight, and I could score. And uh, lo and behold, instead of just 20 games, we played 40, 45 games. It's really something. It did... What do you make of that, too? Because it's so different, right? You know, you're pitching for the Cubs, and, and entertainment is certainly, that's a nice byproduct, but you're pitching to win, whereas with the Trotters, it's being a showman. Did you feel like you, I mean, obviously, you, as you said, you had the talent for it on a uh, just basketball level, but did you feel like this was tapping into a side of yourself that you had expressed before, had not expressed before, the idea of really, you know, being a showman seems like something that doesn't necessarily come naturally to everybody. Well, you know, I played the third quarter every night. Okay. Uh, so I had a chance to see these individuals play the first half of the game. The quarter were entertainers and basketball players. Yeah. The, the teams you see now play with the Globetrotters, they don't do the magic circle anymore. Mm-hmm. They, do, they do the tricks, but every player has a microphone. And they've got women playing with them now. So it, it's, a, it's a different game. It's entertainment uh, to the point. And they still use the name, the Harlem Globetrotters, but they're not the same. Hmm. So I want to ask you about kind of harnessing your skills. I've, t- I've talked to a bunch of ballplayers about this. And, you know, sometimes there's a progression and sometimes there's an aha moment. It, it could be either one. You know, maybe you go out and it's a day game after a night game and you're, you know, get in there, it's 95 degrees, and you dominate, and you say, oh, it clicked. That's it. That's the moment. All right, I feel like I belong. I can be an all-star. I could be this. And sometimes it's just, yeah, as time goes on, you get a little more bite on your breaking ball. You start to figure it out. Which was it for you? Did you feel like there was any game or moment where you said, oh, all right, I'm, I've got it now, or was it just a thing that occurred over the years? Well, it all started uh, in the minor leagues with, with the Phillies. Yeah. I had some good pitching coaches. Cal McClish was my first really bottom and uh, you know when you have a pitch that you think is mastered which was my slider I really was getting people out with it I knew I wasn't going to stay in the minor leagues that long because I was striking people out I was getting ahead in the count guys weren't getting a lot of hits off me Mm -hmm. plus I had a pretty good sinker and a change up 
Uh, I didn't throw many curveballs, but that slider was the pitch that, that I think, to me, got me to the big leagues. And, and I stayed in the big leagues for well over 18 seasons. I've had conversations with, actually, the, the late Dr. Frank Joe, but also Tommy John, and, and people who've had TJ, John Smoltz, what have you. And it seems like there's very much a before and after period in baseball that before TJ and before advanced medical technology in general, it was very much rub some dirt on it, and that was it. And you were very fortunate, and, and not just fortunate, but also durable and, and had skill in that you stayed very healthy and frequently led the league in complete games and led the league in wins multiple times and so forth. But what would happen if your arm was barking? What you know, Koufax famously would use pickle juice. Did you have a home remedy? Was it literally rub some dirt on it if you were feeling sore? How did that come to pass if this was 1972 and we didn't have what we have today? Well, I was fortunate. Uh, maybe it's genetics. I never had a sore arm. Ever? Wow. 21 years in Jeez. professional baseball. Never had a sore arm. Always was, was able to go out there and, and perform. A uh, bit of a rubber arm because my first uh, season and a half was out of the bullpen. Yep. Bullpen with the Phillies and bullpen with the Cubs. And DeRocher gave me some starts the the end of the 66 season. And then I became a full-time starter in 67. So when I look back, uh, I did the right things, you know. I, you know, I didn't try to overthrow. I was an individual. I learned how to change speeds from, as I said, Cal McClick. And then I had Robin Roberts as a coach, and uh, Joe Joe Becker, who coached Koufax and Drysdale and Padres and Quato Scheme. Mm. I mean, you get smart coaches that can help you along the way. You become a better ball player. You become a much better ball player. Because the coaches uh, are there to help you. And I, I had help along the way. And I just used my ability, as I said, and, and uh, never had a sore arm. I threw all the time, too. I threw batting practice, which is... Really? Wow. <laughs> Number one thing that can help you, uh, I think, understand what pitching's all about and learn the hitters is to throw batting practice. Hmm. That's it, it. Would be unheard of for that to happen today. Needless to say, but oh, that's yeah, I threw a batting practice in between starts. They, they don't do that. Hmm. I know it's crazy because the fact that if you're going to learn how to pitch and to be successful, batting practice gives you that edge. Believe me, it does. Fascinating. It's definitely something that could be interesting if somebody were to resurrect it. Um, that era is so fascinating to me. One of the people I've read. I don't know how many books on this guy is Kurt Flood and the impact that Flood had taking a stand for players' rights and saying, you know what, this doesn't make sense. If you are a piano mover or a dentist or literally anything except a ball player, you can call your shot. You can go do whatever you want, wherever you want. You have freedom, and you didn't have that in baseball. Both Flood and Marvin Miller, just such influential people in the way the game progressed and, and all to the good, just made such a big impact. You're playing in this era – and you do eventually uh, get to free agency, although there's trades involved and so forth. But what was your impression of, of that fight as this was going on? And again, you're minding your own business, trying to win games, doing your thing. But what did you think of the system that would not allow you to move? And then as this, these things start to happen and Flood comes in and Marvin Miller makes his impact, the changes start to happen. Well, as you said, those two individuals changed the game. But the reserve clause held a player to the team unless you got traded or released. Yep. And the reserve clause was something that was, was done away with, with free agency. 
free agency gave all these young men the opportunity to go free agents and make all this money, and that's what it's all about. But the game has changed from when I played to now what you see in the, the year 2018, 19. Yeah. It's all changed totally. But it feels like, you know, as Bryce Harper's about to collect his $400 million, I would tip my cap to Marvin Miller. Just... <laughs> I get it. I get it. He's going to probably get 380 from some ball club. Some ball club's going to pay him. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I think that's going to happen. And, and, you know, one of the things with Miller that's frustrating to me, and maybe Flood too, but certainly Miller, it feels like he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And I understand why he hasn't gotten in. It's because the people that are voting are these on these veterans committees are often owners. and They don't necessarily approve of what happened with the game. But if you had your druthers, what do you think? It seems to me that, you know, he's obviously played a different role than Babe Ruth or Willie Mays, but I think Marvin Miller belongs. What say you? Well, to me, uh, he gave some of the players that didn't make all the money that these guys are making now. Yeah. We have a benefit. Uh, it's a major league pension. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get so many years uh, as a performer, they take it's years you get uh, into a qualification class and you get money. Well, once you retire, you can start taking it at 45 or you can take it at 55, 60. It really depends on you as an individual. Yeah. But a, a lot of the older players like myself uh, that have been retired, I put, so thank you very much. So, and the money's there. Yeah. So I just think that Marvin Miller, uh, Really changed the game with 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 the basically the major league pension. As somebody who was traded more than once, did that get to you? Especially maybe the first one. You know, you're signed with a particular organization. You think you're going to come up with that organization, and then off you go to somewhere else. Ends up happening with Phillies to Cubs. Ends up happening with uh, Cubs to Rangers. You're establishing yourself. You're you're making good with the team. And then this happens, and, and as you said, those two trades in particular, they happened before the reserve clause was abolished. Was there sadness or bitterness that, hey, I didn't have any control over this, I didn't have any control at all, and now here I am off to go play somewhere else, and maybe I'll do well there, but it wasn't necessarily something that I planned. Well, as you said, trades are part of the game. Yeah. My first trade, uh, I was young, I was 21 years old. Uh, the next trade, I think I was 30, 31, with the, with the when I got traded from Chicago to Texas, I didn't really mind the trade. Yep. There was, there was, there was a couple of articles said that I had a sore arm. That's why I didn't win 20 games for the seventh year in a row. <laughs> I tried to tell people, nothing wrong with my arm. It just, just didn't play well. Yes. In 1972, we had a terrible ball club. We didn't score a lot of runs. And unfortunately, uh, pitching was suffered a lot of times and not winning ball games. In the following year, I go to Texas and I win 25 games. <laughs> so it really depends on the organization and the ball club you paid for. But uh, I wasn't upset. That's part of the game. You get traded because of the fact that you're a little older, 30, 31. I was traded for Bill Matlock and Vic Harris, two young men that were in their 20s. Yep. And very good player. Matlock in particular became quite a hitter, so no harm there, certainly. And he won a couple of batting titles. So he, he sure did. An outstanding ball player. I mean... The trade, to me, was good for both organizations, you know, the Cubs and, and the Rangers. I want to flash ahead a little bit um, toward the end of your career. You had been pitching, as you said, for such a long time, and then eventually Major League Baseball is not available to you. 
and you decide that you want to pitch more, which I find fascinating. And, and there are people who will do that, that they say, you know what? I'm not done. If I'm not going to play with this team, I'm going to play with that team. And you end up going back to Canada to play some pro ball, uh, doing so with London in London, Ontario. Tell me about that decision because at that point, you know, it's certainly not extremely financially lucrative to pitch for the London majors at the time. And you've certainly proven yourself. Your career has been great. What drives somebody who's had so much success to say, you know what? I got a few years left in me. I'm going to go and do this. Well, the owner of the ball club, and I can't think of his name right now, wanted me to come and uh, participate as a pitcher. And I played a little first base, too. Yep. But I didn't get paid. Uh, he gave me gas money to fly <laughs> back and forth from Blenheim, Ontario. And on the weekends, we made a deal with the organization that when I pitched, they would donate monies to cancer research. Oh, wow. I died of cancer. That, yeah. And that's basically the reason why I played for the London Majors uh, almost uh, a season and I played maybe a couple of games that following year. But I played most of the 84 season with them and then uh, a couple of games in 85. But it was basically for a charitable organization, Cancer Research. Very nice. Um, I want to ask you about the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. I've been to St. Mary's. It's a really good time. And I think that it's something that gets lost a little bit. You know, obviously Cooper sent us the pinnacle, and I'm going to ask you about that too. But it really felt like you start to really get your due in Canada. You know, that they, they, there are Fergie Jenkins days and there are ceremonial first pitches that take place. At the 91 All-Star game, you throw out the first pitch in Toronto. You know, these are all a big deal. And the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame feels like it has a little bit of that too, that yes, it's not the same thing as being enshrined with Mays, but it certainly holds its own cachet. What did you make about getting recognized in Canada so extensively, particularly, especially since you had left for more than two decades? Well, yeah, first of all, I can say I'm proud to be a Canadian. Yes. And anything to do with, with the Canadian organization, uh, I, I'll find the time to do it with them. Hmm. Uh, the nice thing about it is I go up there for the ceremony, uh, try to get it every year. It's in, it's in June. Yep. They have a, a golf outing prior and then a ceremony on Sunday. I just think that what Canada has done for baseball is not forgotten, and, and, and that's a big thing. I, I think that people, uh, when they look at the baseball in Canada, it's not as popular because they only got one team now. You have Toronto. At one time, we had two teams, Montreal yep. uh, and Toronto. I, I just think that once, if you can get an organization to go back into Montreal and Hmm. Start playing the game again. Uh, and basically, it's in Quebec. It's like another country. But the biggest thing is, it's baseball, and uh, people love the game of baseball. Uh, I think it's going to work. I just think that you have to go out there and and have the right people, the right organization, the right sponsors. Uh, baseball is still popular in Canada. It's really unfortunate we only have just the one team. But Toronto has been trying. They're, they're struggling. They had a couple of winners, and now they just can't come up with a winner. Yeah. And they had two World Series winners, what, 92, 93? Mm-hmm. And they just, they suffered a little bit by uh, not having the right individuals to to get the job done. But it, it'll, it'll happen again. Uh, you probably don't know this, but I'm possibly the world's most maniacal Montreal Expos fan. So I, I can't tell you how much I was smiling while you started on that, uh, on that mini rant about baseball in Montreal. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that that would be something that would be wonderful to see baseball back here. There's no question about it. Um, 
I want to ask you about Cooperstown, about that experience. And being up on the podium with the people behind you that are behind you, I cannot even imagine. You know, it's the recognition is wonderful. Being able to go to the museum is wonderful. But it feels to me when I talk to, and this is a few Hall of Famers I've had on the podcast, they all seem to talk about just what is the looks that are happening behind their heads, that you do have these legendary players looking on and welcoming you into their fraternity. And, you know, some people are more impressed or less impressed with stars or whatever, but it, it feels like it's more just a tip of the cap saying, you know what, you belong here. You belong with Mays. You belong with Mantle. You belong with these players. What was that weekend like for you, and what was it like for you being up on that stage knowing who was sitting behind you? Well, at the time, you know, Ted Williams was there. Gee. Uh, Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> Stan Musial. Duke Snyder. Wow. Sandy Koufax. Yeah. Uh, Whitey Ford. I mean, there were so many named players yeah. that came before me that had outstanding careers. And every one of them, when I got inducted with Gaylord Perry and Rod Carew, they all shook our hands saying that, guys, you belong here because of the fact that we had the numbers, and I, I think that's what the game's all about, yep. putting up good numbers and having the opportunity to get voted in. You, you've proven to yourself and the guys that are on the stage with you that you belong in the Hall of Fame. So I was pretty proud of the fact that uh, I was able to be a part of it, knowing that these guys that were on the dais behind me were the guys that led the game. They, they were the, They were the game. When I was a kid, I watched these in Duke Snyder. I watched uh, Tim Williams. I watched Joe DiMaggio. And I was really, really thankful that my ability gave me that opportunity to, to, to be on the same dais with him. Mr. Jenkins, sir, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. You too.